Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molly from Free Domain Radio. Happy New Year! And for those of you under 40, Happy New Year. I'm sorry that was so loud. Uh, I hope that it doesn't disturb your hangovers. It is a wonderful, glorious new year in adventures in philosophy land, enlightening the world and scaring the bad people into the shadows. So um, I hope you had a great break and New Year's. And uh, just to go over, <laughs> we had uh, 300 shows in 2014, 300 philosophy shows. That's 428.8 hours of content. Yes, I agree. The 0.8 may be considered excessive. Or 17.9 days straight. So with sufficient caffeine to the eyeballs, pretty much you can make it through the entire magnum opus of free domain radio shows in one squatting. So um, that I'm very proud of that. I think that's fantastic. Um, I've actually probably about a hundred of those shows uh, are call-in shows. The rest are a variety of other shows. We had 360 total videos. Um, we're not putting out videos that aren't going in the podcast stream, but some of the call-in shows get broken up. So thank you. What can I say? But thank you to everyone who is supporting this my belief, strongly the greatest conversation the world needs at the moment, the greatest conversation that technology has enabled the world to have, and the biggest push forward in the realm of philosophy uh, since, um, I'm guessing, people recognized that uh, <laughs> shapes in a certain way could represent letters. So uh, thank you, everyone, so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your support. FreeDomainRadio.com slash donate to help out the show. We hope to grow to the point where we can start to do original research. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we want to look into that for a variety of politically correct slash leftist slash who knows what um, prejudice has is not available. Uh, for, for people who haven't studied it, there's too much controversy and so on. We'd like to start doing original research. Um, but to do that, of course, we need your money and so or at least your support if uh, you're spreading the show to other people so freedomainradio.com slash donate if you can help out boy we hugely hugely appreciate it so uh, that having been said let's move on to the brains heart soul and nads of the outfit mike who do we have on first up first today is jack jack wrote in and said on the subject of rights how can you have any type of ethical system or society without the concept of rights? Rights which people will be punished for, not necessarily by a government, if they are violated. Great. Okay. Um, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. It's a great question. And I'm sorry uh, for those you, who were startled. Yeah, sorry for those who were startled by my recent discussion of rights in his educational right. But um, um, I've gone over this a bunch of times before, but it's been a while, so... I appreciate you bringing this up again. Yeah, and I haven't so, heard your earlier stuff on rights, and so, you know, I definitely wanted to clarify. You said that um, it's more of a preference to you, like, you know, rights are things which people prefer. Like, I prefer to be educated. I prefer not to be shot. I prefer, you know, all of these things. And is... Well, rights rights don't exist, right? And they're no, not real. They're, they're, a, they're a philosophical construct, in my opinion. Right? Okay. They're not anything that exists. That doesn't make them any more real. I mean, you could say that God is a philosophical construct. You know, it doesn't make it any more real. So right. what, is a, what, is a right, what is a right to you? What is a right? God and rights is that one of them is a philosophical construct that is useful and the other isn't. Usefulness has no value in the realm of philosophy. 
I mean, that that is that is that is utilitarianism. In other words, we we judge the truth of an idea by its usefulness or the validity of an idea or the value of an idea. Um, but uh, utility is subjective, right? So the va- value to something, well, rights are useful. Well, to who? Based on what? It's like, you know, the, the, the preference. The moment you bring preference into it, it's not philosophical, it's subjective, right? Like if you want to say who are they, like if you want to talk about utilitarianism and the different, you know, ethical systems, like, you know, each one of them has its own problems, like Kant's categorical imperative, you know, only do what, you know, you would want everyone to do all of the time. Well, that has its problems because, you know, there are certain instances where, you know, lying to someone could be for their benefit or from whatever. And, you know, utilitarianism has its problems. And Well, if I, you know, if I'm the strongest man in the village, then I can follow the Kantian imperative and say the strongest man should get his way. And I'm willing for that to be universal because I'm the strongest guy. So, um, yeah, I mean, but the problem is, is that you say, well, rights are useful and God is not useful. But I think that that's not defensible because God is very useful to people who are better at talking than working, right? <laughs> For people who are better at spinning yarns than they are at spinning yarn, <laughs> they, uh, they find God very useful. I'm sure the Pope finds the concept of God extremely useful. That's true. Uh, there, and, I, people do find the concept of God useful in guiding them in their life. But let me be more specific with what I mean when I say rights are useful um, philosophically. And I, I mean, we... We do know that morally speaking, we have to have a definition of what is right and what is wrong in order to have a society, you know, in which we can live and coexist, right? Well, hang on, hang on. Are you using homonyms here now? <laughs> or, or Because you're saying rights, and then you take an S off, and you make things right or wrong, but you didn't point out that we've changed the topic, right? No, 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 no. I'm not... I'm, we're going to get there, but w- right and wrong is a is a is. Would you say that it, that's a helpful thing to know what is right and what it's, is no, wrong? No, it's not helpful in this context because I don't know if you mean right or wrong, like correct or incorrect. I don't know if you mean, mean right morally, or wrong, like moral, like as a moral judgment. Like when you think about someone killing someone else, you ha- that that there there's a moral component to that. Was it right or was it wrong, morally speaking? But what, is the, what does moral component mean? I mean, uh, I'm going to play moral nihilist, just, just so you know, right? I mean, I, you know I've got my own proof of secular ethics. But let me play moral nihilist, because that's the challenge you have with rights. So, okay, uh, what, what do you mean by a moral component for murder? Is it something that attaches to murder like a, like a remora to the underside of a shark's jaw? I mean, is, is it something like a little ball of, of black light that attaches to the act of murder and makes it evil? Is it, is it a shadow that no, is cast I mean, by the act? What do you mean? It, it, for society as a whole to progress and to get nope. better. And nope. to get no, 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 no. Sorry, man. I hate to be annoying, but now you're back into utilitarianism again. For the betterment of society, for this, that, and the other. No. But I think that rights are important in a very utilitarian kind of way. And, and that, well, but, but no, no, but if you're talking utilitarianism, hang on. If you're talking utilitarianism, then you can't talk about good and evil. You can talk about useful. Like you can say, look, if you want to dig in the ground, a shovel is helpful. But it's not good or evil. It's not evil to use a spoon rather than a shovel. It's just inefficient, right? It's just not practical compared to the shovel. 
So you can't take utility and pretend that you're talking about the same thing as ethics, because ethics can be profoundly unutilitarian, right? When was it was it sensible for people to hide Jews from the Nazis? No. Was it was it sensible or practical or helpful or useful for people to set up the Underground Railway to get slaves from the South to right, Canada or someplace where they could that be free? Moral, right? We would say that they did the right thing. And why is right, that? Right, but but, but then you can't you can't bring the good the right of society of in. Sorry, go ahead. We would say that they did the right thing because we believe in the right for people to be free, you know, you know, not just because they're black. You know, you can't have slaves just because they're black. We believe in the fundamental human freedom that, you know, it's not okay for to make other people slaves based on the color of their skin. And that's helpful for society. What does helpful mean? It means... You know, you know, it forwards the idea of the non-aggression principle. Rights, I think, are fundamental. No, no, but you're begging the question. Hang on, point. hang on. No, no, but you, you, you understand the problem is that you're begging the question. We're trying to figure out what rights and virtue are, and you're saying, well, it's that which furthers the non-aggression principle, which is virtue. But that's begging the question. We're trying to figure that's out true. what virtue is, right? Not, not well, it, it forwards this definition of virtue. That's true. So what would you say that virtue is? Well, virtue is, is acting in accordance with universally preferable behavior. And what would you define as universally preferable behavior? Well, that's the beauty of UPB is it's actually kind of <laughs> defined in the language itself. So uh, um, universally preferable behavior is behavior which all people or actions which all people can prefer under all situations and all circumstances. So, for instance, respect to the example of two guys in a room, Bob and Duck. Can they both respect each other's property rights at the same time? They sure can, right? They can just not steal each other's iPods or earphones or whatever, right? Right, but then you just used the example of rights as a foundation for an example of what UPB is. It's based on the respective rights. No, that's not what I'm doing. But uh, so, so give me a chance to go more than okay. 35 seconds into the Sorry. argument proving ethics, if you don't mind. I apologize. Um, I'll let you go now, for a while. So I can say, uh, I can logically say, and it can be logically consistent, that respecting property rights is universally preferable behavior. Now, I'm, I know I'm using the word property rights and I'm sorry about that because that's just the, the standard nomenclature. I can't make up my own term. I've tried property properties, but it doesn't really work very well. Let's just – we can say murder. So we can say thou shalt not murder. Well, everyone can – that can be a rule which everyone can follow with, uh, all at the same time. However, two guys in the same room cannot both murder each other at the same time because murder must be both wanted then and unwanted. The act of killing someone if they don't want you to do it is murder. Right. If they if they want you to do it, then, then it's not, it's not exactly then it's the same. Assisted suicide. Yeah, or euthanasia, or or so, who knows? It's not quite the same as murder. At least I don't think it would be in a rational society. So universally preferable behavior. You can't have a rule which says everyone must murder. 
that that can't logically be done. It's like saying everyone must steal. In other words, stealing or the, the, the forcible or uh, unapproved transfer of someone else's stuff must be universally preferable. It can't be universally preferable because for, in order for it to be theft, it has to be unwanted. So for Bob to steal from Doug and it not just be lending or borrowing or whatever, then Doug must not want Bob to steal from him. In other words, for if you're going to say everyone must steal, then you're saying, well, Bob must steal from, from Doug. But Doug must also value stealing universally and therefore must, not, must want him to steal from him because stealing is universally preferable behavior. But it can't, be, can't work that way because the moment that Doug uh, – the moment Bob wants Doug to steal from him, it's no longer stealing. So, I mean, this is just a very quick example, and there's more in the book University Preferable Behavior, which people can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. But that would be an example to me of a, a way of establishing, and, and UPB or University Preferable Behavior works with the four major bands in human ethics, right, which is um, a theft, rape, murder, and assault. None of these things can be universally preferable behavior because they have to be both wanted and unwanted, pursued and avoided at the same time, under the same circumstances, by the same people, which is exactly the same as having a theory which says, under exactly the same circumstances, matter behaves both one way and the opposite way. Uh, and that simply doesn't, it can't work. Okay. Right? I mean, it's like saying two plus two equals both four and the opposite of four at the same time, that that would never pass muster from any mathematician no, or logician, and it's the same thing that I get why you can't have those things as universally preferable behavior, and I get why there is a ban on those things, but what I don't understand is why you can't get to the same place. Like, if everyone were to act under UPB, how would that be any different if everyone just respected a set of, you know... Pre, let's let's try social contract theory. A pre-agreed upon set of rights that everyone, you know, n- you know. No, listen, man. Live, but let's let's look. Whatever. No, that it it matters. It matters because it's like saying, well, it's what's the difference if if people understand that two and two make four because they've worked it out for themselves and they understand it logically versus they believe that two and two make four because a unicorn goblin king told them in an LSD fantasy, right? It it matters how you get to a conclusion. In fact, philosophy is says that the process matters the most. The conclusion is relatively unimportant. The process matters in right, philosophy. But the process of how we get to rights being important is their and you're gonna say this is utilitarianism again, but their benefit to society. Right? No, and there's it, no such thing as society. God there's no such thing as society. Look, the fact that the U.S. takes in trillions and trillions of dollars a year in taxes by violating property rights. I'm not defending the government at all. No, I understand that. I understand that. But there are massive sectors of society who really, really want it that way. It benefits them. They love it. They will go to the wall. They will fight to the death to keep it that way. To keep what, what way? I'm, to keep I'm, the tax system in place. No, the military-industrial complex, is, the welfare a, complex, government unions, government-supported private sector unions, uh, uh, the the the, uh, mili- the the financial industrial complex, the the, the wizards of Wall Street—they all love that rights. stuff. I'm not arguing that it's an infringement on 
rights because when the government taxes people, it's stealing. Unless no, I get that, but but so, but I'm not, I'm not saying. Listen, I'm I'm not saying that you're agreeing with that. What I'm saying is that people at the top of Wall Street companies or people at the top of the Fed can make a huge amount of money and often do through government control of the money supply of interest rates and so on, right? Yes. It is massively beneficial to them to have the existing system in place. Bad teachers who wouldn't be able to push a broom in a free market school get to run schools in the government system. It ah. is, and they get, they get benefits, job security, summers off. Uh, they get uh, huge gold-plated retirements. They, they don't have to work that hard. It's massively beneficial for hundreds of millions of people just in America for the system to be there. So when you say society benefits from a consistent application of, of property theory, I don't understand what you're saying. But, but I'm not arguing for any type of government to guarantee your rights. I'm just arguing that You're rights... not understanding my opposition to what you're saying. Okay, let me try it again. You say society benefits from a respect for property rights. Was that your argument? Sure. I'm sorry. I'm, it was your argument. It either was or it wasn't. I'm not sure what sure means. I mean, like I've got you cornered or something, right? No. Yes. So society benefits from understanding why rights are important and they also benefit from respecting them. And those who I feel like those who don't respect rights and don't understand why they're important, they should be shunned by the rest of whatever free market, what, you know, don't call it society, call it the free market, you know. If there's someone who wants to steal and cheat and rob, we should not – they're violating people's rights and therefore okay. we should ostracize them. Okay. So if I'm a government teacher, like I'm a public school teacher and I'm terrible at my job, but I get 70, 80K a year, I get summers off, I get – I can't be fired – uh, I get benefits, health care, pension, you name it, right? Tell me how I benefit from there being no government schools. Okay, um, I see your point. Now I see your criticism is that there are going to be some people who will benefit from violating other people's rights. And the fewer people who violate other people's rights, the more beneficial it is to violate other people's rights. In other words, if, if I was the only thief in the world, I would you have would a be, really easy time. Oh, with yeah. It. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, the I more people, so the more people you can convince to respect other people's rights, the more valuable you make it for everyone else to not respect those rights or maybe just to pretend to. But right. So this is you can't eliminate if you're going to use utilitarianism, you cannot eliminate rights violations. All you can do is make it more attractive to be a rights violator by convincing decent people to respect rights. And then the nasty people among us will just continue to. Because right? if you're going to pull out utilitarianism, absent ethics, then you are increasing the utility value of immorality, of, of a lack no. of respect for other people's rights by convincing more and more people to respect other people's I rights. I agree with your criticism with just utilitarianism alone and I think that it does need, you know, some kind of a modification maybe of of virtue ethics or of, you know, the ethics of care or, you know, 
you know, I just think that just because an ethical system or, you know, has its flaws, that doesn't mean we have to throw the whole thing in the garbage. That's not that that's just making noise. You're not making any kind of philosophical argument there. You're. I am not making any kind of philosophical argument there. Okay, well, since this is a philosophy show, perhaps we could be making philosophical arguments rather than saying, well, just because something has been found flawed doesn't mean you throw the whole thing out, which I don't even know what that means, right? I apologize. Let me I mean, yes, myself. sometimes it does. Look, nervous. You, no, it's okay. Right. If I say, look, there's only five milliliters of arsenic in my mashed potatoes, so there's a lot more mashed potatoes than arsenic, I guess I shouldn't throw the whole thing out. Well, yeah. <laughs> You should, right? Throw the whole thing out. As opposed to, well, the aerial broke off my car. You don't throw out the whole it just There's no philosophical content in what you're saying. What it means, though, is that you can't appeal to the value of rights based upon their utility to society, right? Which is why utilitarianism doesn't work. Utilitarianism is forwarded generally by people who want to convince you to respect their rights while they have no intention of respecting your rights. They want to reduce your competition uh, for their disrespect of rights. Um, this is almost almost always the case with utilitarianism. And the way they do that is they pretend, well, you and me, we're basically just the same. We're basically just the same. So uh, if it's good for you, yeah, it's good for me, it's good for everyone. But there is no just the same in society. Society is a warring and battling at the moment, a warring and battling ecosystem of competing interests and opposing interests and so on. Right? So to so say that there's one common good for society. self-interest. I'm sorry? Why not get to a place where everyone has enlightened self-interest instead of just self-interest? Okay. So you want a different kind of species. <laughs> well, so you want, you want there to be lions who say, well, the zebra doesn't want to get eaten, so I'll starve to death. I see the problem with that. So how, how, does, how, do, how does universally preferable behavior... Um, how does it compensate for, you know, what if someone doesn't want to respect, wasn't, you know, what if someone doesn't want to, you know, follow universally preferable behavior, then what do you do with them in, in that society? Like, well, first of all, it's, uh, you know, this is why I focus on philosophy, the philosophy of parenting, which is, um, we want to breed as few lions as possible. Like if you want a peaceful environment, breed as few lions as possible. Now, this is a limited analogy because lions are necessary to cull the herds. Otherwise, they overeat the grass and all starve to death. So, I mean, forgive me for using an animal an analogy. But you want to, if you want a peaceful environment, then you have to breed as few predators as possible, which means raise your children without aggressing against them, without hitting them, without bullying them, without dominating them, which all, all that teaches them is that might makes right. And, of course, the worst thing that parents do is not just the bullying. It's the bullying co-joined with the endless moralizing. Yeah, it's because the, then, well, because then what, say, what? My what, mother used to say, well, "I'm I'm your parent, and that makes it right." Like I'm I'm the adult. Right. That's literally yeah. might makes right. Yes, might 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 gets its way, but the best way for might to get its way is to cloak its power in moral cliches. And so, uh, the first thing to do is there's ways to raise people. So that they respect and recognize other people's needs. They negotiate rather than use aggression. They are used to win-win negotiations rather than win-lose. And all these things uh, are in the parenting in the first five to seven years of life, which is why I've been hammering and focusing low these nine years. This is going to be uh, the 10th year 
uh, of yeah, my I first publication. I really respect you for championing um, because it feels like no one else in this world does champion the rights of children as much as you do. So, well, yeah, I, I think there's certainly other people doing a fantastic job, and I'm sort of just trying to put my weight in behind the the wheel. Uh, but I appreciate that. So, so we raise more people to the point where they don't uh, feel this endless compulsion to dominate others because they've been raised peacefully and negotiating and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, based on my experience as a parent, watching my daughter with other kids, it works. I mean, so that's a sample size of one. So when you say I want a different species, I guess I do, and I guess you do too. You want a different species where everyone is raised properly and therefore, you know, knows the, you know, what's wrong and what's right and... Well, yeah, I mean, because the philosophy then is not applied to the broken adults after they've been raised badly, but to the parents who are raising them, right? You, you apply the philosophy of the non-aggression principle to the parents, and as many as possible, you convince them to use peace in the raising of their children. And then you grow up with, with children who, are, uh, use, who, who negotiate. Like if, if it took everyone speaking Japanese for the world to become peaceful— you know, there was this old communist idea that you get everyone to speak Esperanto. Right. And, yeah. and that way the workers would all understand each other. And, you know, the, the next thing you know, it's kumbaya and collectivism right. and without the slaughterhouse right. and all. So if, if it took everyone speaking Japanese for the world to become free, then I guess you could say, well, we need everyone who's an adult to learn Japanese. And that would be quite a challenge. Now, another way would be if we could find some way to get children raised in a Japanese-speaking environment, then they would naturally grow up speaking Japanese, right? Again, this is a limited analogy because you don't just spontaneously develop a knowledge of Japanese, but it's a lot easier to peaceful parent than it is to learn Japanese. Right, and when there are always going to be a certain percentage of the population that has the, you know, whatever warrior gene or, or that is just genetically, you know, psychopaths or, you know, sociopaths or... Yeah. Well, okay, but then if it was genetic, then they would have no moral content. Then it would be like somebody who, who strangled a cat because he had a brain tumor. We would, we would cure that person of the brain tumor if we could, but we would not morally castigate him for strangling the cat, right? So if it's genetics, then it doesn't have anything to do with ethics. Uh, because that's, that's like having an ethics that say, well, anyone who's under five foot six is immoral. Like, well, a lot of that's not under well, your control. Well, there's no necessarily curing someone who has... A genetic predisposition towards, or at least there isn't now. Well, I don't know if you, there's a, a brain researcher who there's a brain researcher who accidentally saw one of his own scans. He's a, he studies, I think, psychopathy or sociopathy, and he recognized that he has the brain patterns of, of yes. sociopathy or psychopathy. But because he was raised in such a loving environment, he actually became quite a positive person and quite a helpful person, and somebody who really studies and positively in society and, and contributes a lot of good stuff. I think, to society. So a genetic predisposition, when it comes up against a, a peaceful and loving environment, I think that would do a huge amount to blunt, if not neuter, the genetic uh, predisposition, right? I mean, it, it takes the genes for lung cancer with smoking, plus smoking, a lot of times to, to make that happen. It's genes plus environment connecting together. And if you, I can't change the genes, but we can at least change the environment. Yeah, right. And through epigenetics, through being raised peacefully, you change the genes 
of the children, right? The, the genetics of an adult yes. who's raised peacefully turns out to be different from the genetics of a person who's raised brutally, and that genetic imprint is less likely to pass on to the next generation. We're Trauma actually altering is the course. On. You are correct. Yes, we are altering the course of human genetics by proposing peaceful parenting for the planet. We are we are we are creating what the Marxists thought could be done economically. And what the eugenicists thought could be done through selective breeding, we are doing scientifically by promoting peaceful parenting. We are changing the genetic course of the species okay, uh, in so very fundamental ways. Let me give you a criticism that I hear very often when I'm trying to push peaceful parenting on uh, friends and stuff like that. Uh, and I often get the criticism of, you know, what you, you know, you're going to tell my parents that they can't spank me for doing something wrong. You know, you know, it's their quote unquote oh, hang on. right. Well, to, wait, wait, hang on. Who, who are you talking to? <laughs> Eight year olds? No, I'm talking to people my age, you know, 24 who are they getting spanked by their parents? No, they, they were spanked as children. And when I, when I say, look, I don't think the hitting of children is right in any circumstances. When we're discussing our history, I have a history of being hit as a child. You know, they did as well by their parents. These are kids that I've known since kindergarten. Um, we're still friends. And they, they go, you know what, I think that my parents' spanking was important. You know, it made me learn discipline. It made me learn, you know, respect, responsibility, whatever they – they justify it, and then they say, you know, it's it's no one's right to tell my parents, you know, how to parent me or whatever, you know, like like if they want to have another kid, it's their right to parent them however they want. What would you say to those people? Well, I would say, what's your evidence? I mean, people that, that make claims. I can say that I'm, you know, a fairy with wings who can do the Macarena on the uh, Arsene of Betelgeuse, right? I mean, it's like, okay, well, I'd, I'd, I'd actually pay good money to see that. Perhaps you'd like to give me a demonstration. So when people say, well, you know, I'm a better person for having been hit as a child, I would say, well, um, what's, what's your evidence? Right? And, and they would say, well, I don't, I mean, what would they say? I mean, you've, you've talked to these people. What would they say? They go, well, obviously I can't, you know, prove that, you know, I'm better. And, you know, it's, it's, it's anecdotal, of course. So um, then it's not – so then I would say what it's interesting to me that you're making a, 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 an absolute statement of truth. But the moment you're challenged on it, you fold. Does that not appear the slightest bit like you might be defensive about it, which I can understand. Right. But you're saying, well, I'm a better person. I say, well, what's your proof? Well, I don't have any proof. It's just that. Well, but you were acting in the just in the previous moment as if you just knew it for certain. And then when challenged or asked, you don't. And then I would say, do you like have you done any research on the effects of spanking and the alternatives to spanking? And they would say no, I assume. Right. Because they just right. They assume that they know what it is right and then i would say well did you know that um you know spanking increases the likelihood of of interpersonal problems uh, spanking also has been shown to reduce iq you know three points four points five points depending on on how it's measured and that meta-analysis of many many spanking studies shows extremely negative consequences because every time you're being hit you're not being reasoned with you're not learning how to negotiate you're not learning how to treat someone else with respect. All you're doing is submitting to power. Do you think that humanity benefits when people learn 
how to submit to power? Do you think that works for the police that we have in our society? Do you think it works for the military? Do you think it works for politicians or voters or husbands or wives that as children and from children from childhood onwards, they're taught that whoever has the most power makes the rules and it's virtuous to submit to that? Do you, I mean, to take a ridiculously extreme example, do you think that worked out really well in Nazi Germany, which also had a, a, a significant history of aggression towards children? Do you think that people just end up as adults thinking or feeling that you have to submit or surrender to those who have the most power around you? Uh, do you think that doesn't make for a frightened and overcomplicit population, which, you know, in this age of the weapons of mass destruction could be considered somewhat dangerous? And again, I'm not sort of putting these your friends or, or in, in this category necessarily. But if they haven't done any research in the matter, then my strong suggestion would be if you want to talk about these things and, and state hypotheses and conclusions, like I am a better person because I was hit, you might want to have the first clue of what you're talking about and not use your own historical examples of that. Okay, because I that's apologize. not science. I got right? disconnected in between um, what you were saying there. I caught the tail end of it. Um, I can't repeat it because that's boring right, for everyone else. It's, it's, you can right, listen back to that part. I'm not asking But you, yeah, but if... Yeah. if Ask them if people provide, make a claim, you know, if people are making it, they need to have evidence. And if they don't have evidence, then they need to stop making those claims. They need to start going to get evidence. Right. It's it, I mean, what they're basically I mean, the way you can analogize it for them is it's like me saying, well, I knew a black guy who stole a car once. So all black guys steal cars right now. If you put that to your friends, they'd say, well, that would be. Terrible, right? I mean, that would be a racist thing to say. You're extrapolating from personal experience to a universal that is not valid. And in the same way, if you say, well, I'm better because I was hit, first of all, you don't even know that. And, and second of all, if you're then extrapolating and saying, and therefore all children should be hit, that is a ridiculously bad piece of thinking, which indicates a cognitive problem in the area because if you put that kind of thinking in any other situation people would immediately see how ridiculous it was i knew a chinese guy who had a cold once so all chinese people should be injected with colds <laughs> i mean well, that would just be insane to and so standing it, up for a parent's um i i hate to use this word again because right to discipline their child how how they see fit and the, the problem comes down to, well, where do you draw the line? And I don't know where you draw the line, um, but I think that's a huge challenge no, but, in any moral area. No, it's not. I mean, first of all, by discipline, you mean hit. Right? I mean, let's at least call the goddamn thing by what it is. Yes. Right? It's not called wife discipline. It's called wife beating or wife hitting. <laughs> okay. Right? All right. Like you're saying, I have the right to hit my child because my child, why, 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 why would somebody have the right to hit a child? Well, to teach them, oh, here, here's the argument that they gave me. Well, let's say my child is running into the street and they're too young to understand that streets are dangerous and I pull them back and I spank them and I say no. And so next time they're going to know, you know, through negative reinforcement that oh. not to run you know, that's so, I mean, sorry, that's, that's so ridiculous because it's like saying, okay, if I leave the door open on an airplane, am I allowed to punch any passenger who gets close to it because I don't want them to fall out of the airplane? 
So you would say no. it's the parents. Close the goddamn door on the airplane. <laughs> Get a goddamn fence. Stay with your children. Keep them inside until they're old enough. Get other children to watch them. Hire a bodyguard. For God's sakes, there's six million things you can do other than cracking them one over the head or the butt. Thank you for that. I will use that next time. It's it. I mean, it's like oh, a, a hot stove. It's like, hey, if you're whole, if you're close enough to hit your kid, then you're close enough to gently move them out of the situation. And by the way, it's your job as a parent to keep your child safe. And if your child is in a dangerous situation, I don't understand how the child gets hit for your goddamn failure as a parent to keep your child in a safe environment. You know, like when. You you could buy these, I mean, child safety stuff, you know, playing with a fork in the, in, like, get the plugs. They cost like 40 cents each. Get the little plugs that go into the plug outlets. Don't worry about it. Well, they were near the top of the stairs. They could have tumbled down. Get the things at the top of the stairs that you, gates that, you know, I mean, God, just be safe. It's your job to make the child safe. You know, it's like the parents would say, well, you know, I don't put my kid in any kind of car seat or restraint. And every now and then they like they they crawl up to the front seat and they're about to change the gears on me. So I have to elbow them in the head so that they learn not to change the gears. It's like, get a car seat. <laughs> Prevention. By the time you're hitting your child, you failed. It's too late. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for putting it in, in words that I can never seem to find. Um, and where does the, my wife keeps bringing me warm beer so I punch her in the teeth? I mean, I have asked her a dozen times. I like it cold. Yeah, and then she keeps exactly bringing me the these warm beers. Bam! Well, she's going to remember the cold beers now. Yeah, you try that in court. Well, I was trying to teach her something. It wasn't sinking into her head. Well, and I think. Oh, and by the way, my wife is my wife is retarded and has the intellect of a six-year-old. So I should hit my six-year-old. Sorry, go ahead. I think part of the problem is you brought up courts, and courts don't recognize really the rights of children. They recognize the rights of parents to hit their children, actually. Do, do children vote? And that, well, that's the problem is children don't have the right to vote and, until they're 18, and you know, therefore you know, they can't stand up for their own rights, and so therefore their rights don't do them any good, even if they were to have them in some sort of philosophical you – know, a status, yeah, a status society is fundamentally predicated on the imprintation of might over right on children because there's just no way that children can fit into a status society if they're not taught that might makes right. Otherwise, they might notice that taxation is theft and cops are just guys in blue costumes. Right. And so you cannot ever expect a status society to protect the rights of children because a status society is predicated on violating the rights of children. And I don't care if it's Sweden that banned spanking 30 years ago. They still taxes and, and they still got government schools and, and all of that. So this is why you have to start working privately and you have to start convincing parents, grueling situations, convince young people one by one. Don't hit. Don't well, yell. I'm, I'm certain. Why do children even need? Why do children even need to be punished? Punished for what? There's two possibilities. When a child doesn't do what you want, there's only two possibilities. Either the child is too young to understand or they're old enough to understand, but you have not done a good enough job of explaining it to them. Amen. Now, if the child is too young to understand your request, then hitting a child is sadistic. 
And if the child is old enough to understand, but you haven't made a good enough case, then you're hitting the child for your failure as a parent. What conceivable sense does that make? I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, I, I, I was hit as a child and I've been trying to get my parents to see for years how wrong it was and to get them, you know, to apologize and to get other people around me to see, you know, just what a negative impact, you know, hitting children has on them. You know, um, I'm bipolar and I think it's hugely to do with being hit as a child. And, and how often were you hit? Um, you know... I remember as a child we had two paddles and one of them was wooden and had black and red writing on it and the other was a pink plastic one and um you know I got hit hard enough and enough times to where I remember what the paddles look like to this day so I'm so sorry I'm I'm so sorry I mean it is so ridiculously unnecessary Thank you and counterproductive, it and it's not, I mean, children, how on earth do you think you can benefit children by doing something which you know they specifically hate and fear the most? I mean, how, what, what a ridiculous use of the child's innate nerve endings, body and preferences. What a horrible thing to set a child at odds with his or her own body. It's funny. It, it's religious, fundamentally. Spanking is religious, and it's been heavily associated with religiosity. In the same way that religion takes your natural drive for sex and good food and, and, and says, well, that's it all into evil. into a sin, and so therefore you yeah. need to atone, and oh, yeah, I'm... Oh, do you want I've to touch yourself down there? Stefan, I, I knew God was bullshit as soon as I prayed once, and, like, nothing happened. And I'm like, okay. And I tried it again, and I was like, empirical evidence, right? And then I was like... You know, nothing ever happened, and if it did, it was just a coincidence, you know, nothing more. So, right. And then I but, looked but through the, the Bible, same way, and there's no, it's just... Yeah, retarded. in the same way that your natural... In the same way that your natural desires for, for sex and comfort and, and things of this world are turned against you in religion, your very nervous system is turned against you in... Spanking in, in hitting. In, it sounds to me with paddles, that's more like a beating. Um, and that is it really sets people at odds with themselves. It sets children at odds with themselves. And it is unbelievably tragic. So unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. My daughter is a very good listener, right? So uh, was it yesterday I was talking with her and said, you know, well, what, what would you like to be different? about uh, this year. Is there anything that you'd like to change, right? She's getting older now and so on. And I've got a childhood nickname for her and she says, I think I'm too old for that. And I said, okay, um, if you would prefer me not to, I will, you know, it'll take me a little while to change, but I'll, I'll really, uh, really work on it, right? And she has a, um, you know, if I make a joke, she'd say, liar, you know? And, and, you know, what I was saying wasn't true, but, you know, if I'm making a joke. And so I said, you know, I'd rather you call me Joker because liar sounds like I'm really trying to do something <laughs> nefarious. Right. And she said, yeah, that's that's fair, you know. And and she did actually. She called me a liar today when I made a joke. And um. And then she said, oh, I'm so sorry. And and so she wants to adjust 
her behavior to my preferences. I want to adjust my behavior to her preferences. This is part of a not too long, but, you know, somewhat involved list of things that we'd like to do differently because, you know, she's getting older and, and we're changing as a, you know, father, daughter team and so on. So having these kinds of negotiations is what it's all about. The idea that it's like, you called me a liar. I'm going to make you sit in the naughty corner. And, you know, like, what the hell? Just just have a damn conversation. I, I think mean, your kids are difficult. They, they want to please to imagine, you. you know, because if you've never had that as a child, it's really hard for you to imagine what that looks like. Oh, no, I'm so, I got to disagree with you there, Jack. It is actually quite easy to know what it looks like. You just have to do. It's the opposite world, right? Everything which was horrible to you as a child, you just do you the don't exact on your children, yeah. right? I mean, for one thing, you know, you don't want to hit your kids with a paddle, right? Oh no, I, I've any- vowed to do the exact opposite of what my parents did with me in every way, and to take up peaceful parenting. If and if if I become a dad, we'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Right, right, and I'm I'm sorry that your parents aren't listening to to the case that you're making. I really am. That's that's so sad. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine um, if I hit a child repeatedly. How often does this come down on you? I'm sorry? What do you mean? How, how often did you get hit in this way? Um, I would say, you know, I would get into an argument with my mom at least once a week, if not once every two weeks, it's serious, you know, yelling, screaming, a lot of, a lot of them, uh, the paddles weren't, they didn't hit me that hard with them, but it was a lot of yelling and emotional, uh, yeah, like emotional attacking, probably more so damaging than, than the physical. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly see that. So, but that's not why I called. And uh, um, well, no, but we were talking about how in the future. So, you know, very briefly, we 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 aim to 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 change the genetics of the species and to 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 raise children into adults who who negotiate rather than aggress, who do not seek out win lose situations, but seek out win win situations. And if we get enough of those people. Two things happen. Number one, the, the rate of, of, of crime and predation and so on drops considerably. Number two, when there are enough healthy people in the world, the sick people become incredibly obvious, incredibly evident, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, if, uh, if, if, there's a, if there are only a few nasty people in the world for somehow people think, well, you know, if, if people, if, if kids are raised really nicely, they'll be susceptible to immorality. Oh, bullshit. The complete opposite is true. The more brutally you raise children, the more susceptible they are to those with power who want to do them harm. Guess why? <laughs> I don't even need to say it, right? It's so obvious. Yeah. And, um, and so when you have more healthy people around who are all enjoying win-win negotiations – when some D-bag comes along and wants to impose power, everyone's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, where is so, this coming from, right? Like, whoa, this is really person? different. Sorry? 
how would you deal with that person? So, so let's say we're in this new, um, you know, world where people have been, there's been peaceful parenting that's been going on for a really long time. And, you know, a new generation has come up and there's very few of these people who are left that are, you know, immoral and that were treated terribly as children and that have, you know, um, issues and act out aggressively and stuff like that. Um, you know, you're always, I think, going to need something that looks like a government institution, but I, like like a police force, for example, or a security force, you know, that responds to if your house were to be broken into. It's not the same as the police, right? But it kind of looks like the police. Yeah, because, of course, it's very rare, right, that this, this would happen. But let's just say that, I don't know, someone becomes mean. Of course... The, the the people who protect your property would want to promote peaceful parenting. See, governments profit from rights violations. This is what is so hard for people to, to understand. Like an insurance company that insures you against your house burning down, do they want you to have smoke detectors? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because of course they do. Them. Yeah. Yeah, do, you know, when, you, when you're starting to get your driver's license as a kid, if you take a course on how to be a good driver, the insurance company is, hey, great, here's a discount. Yeah, put one of those sticks in your car to see how you drive, here's a discount, you know. Every right. prevention right. method they can take helps them at their bottom line, and so therefore they're going to be invested in preventing the crime rather than responding to the crime in the first place, at least if they are doing it under sufficient, you know, free market forces. Right. I mean, was it the government-run fire departments that developed smoke detectors? I don't know the answer to that question. The answer to that is no. They did not. <laughs> not no, they didn't. Though. Absolutely not. Of course not. Of course not. Of course they didn't. You know, is it, is it the, um, was it the, the police, the government-run police that came up with those anti-theft devices in retail stores. You know, the things that they sew these little ink things into your oh, yeah. sweater or whatever, I worked right? at a retail was store it? with those. No, it was definitely yeah. not the police. It was... It's not the police. Not it's, the police. It's the, it's the insurance companies. It's up for ways to prevent things, not, not the government. Because the government profits the more they have to respond to crime. And in fact, they generate revenue from crime, like speeding and all that kind of stuff, and red light cameras and court fees and you know well, plus whatever. if if there's crime then the government has its existence justified because everyone thinks you need the government because of crime so the government has zero incentive to prevent crime it has zero incentive to intervene uh, in a positive way within families to ensure children are raised in a way that diminishes their their likelihood of becoming criminals right i mean imagine you're some politician right now um, I can't. <laughs> no, imagine, so imagine you're some politician right now, and you say, look, we've got these studies that show that spanking and, and aggression and, and confinement all contribute to significant dysfunction within society, to, to drug addiction, to, to alcoholism, to cigarettes uh, addiction, uh, to, to promiscuity, to what, impulsive, impulse problems and so on, impulsivity problems. So listen, parents, as a politician, uh, I'm going to put a program in place which is going to really positively benefit um, society about 20 years down the road. And 
you know, we're really going to put these things in practice where it's, you know, it's going to become illegal to hit your kids. It's going to become illegal to aggress against your kids. And we're going to put, you know, mandatory uh, education uh, in for uh, uh, children. They're going to be spot surprise visits. And also, by the way, if you don't like any of that, you can always opt out of it very easily. But when your kids go to the doctors, the doctors are going to give them uh, non-invasive, very safe brain scans. And then we can see how the children's brains are developing and whether they're developing the right neofrontal cortex, whether their amygdala is enlarged, whether their hippocampus is enlarged, which all indicates uh, pressured or, or aggressive parenting. And, you know, it's not going to be. So we're just going to review that the same way that we review uh, for various other illnesses. We just, you know, we're going to do all of that. I mean, that politician would never make it past the third sentence before being like run off the stage yeah, totally with pitchforks. Out of, yeah, uh, just yeah, because the no kids way. don't vote, right? And and the kids aren't voting. Vote, and the kids aren't smart enough that. to vote in their best interest, and the people who the parents, are smart yeah. enough to vote in their best interest, you know, they they're looking in short term and not long term. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? I mean, if politicians cared about twenty years down the road, there would be no deferred pensions instead of raises for public sector unions. There'd be no national debt. There'd be no unfunding or underfunding of uh, social security. There'd be like there wouldn't be eighty trillion dollars or whatever the hell it is of unfunded liabilities. Uh, so the whole system now is designed to pander to people's vanities and and preferences and so on, which is why no politician says anything bad about single moms, even though. Single parenthood of both genders is kind of the scourge and end and stake in the heart of society as a whole. You just can't say these things. I can, but but they can't, right? Which is why I don't want that gig as one of the many. Well, ones. and I'm glad you are saying those things because someone does need to say those things, even if they are politically incorrect. Oh, because they're politically incorrect. Politically incorrect is just this giant moat around everything you can't talk about, which disrupts the communist or leftist agenda to destroy Western civilization as we know it. So a state of society can't exist. A, a hierarchical might-is-right society cannot exist if children are raised peacefully, which is why peaceful parenting is the most fundamental anarchic idea that could possibly be put forward. It is the most subversive, anti-statist, anti-theological. I mean, the, the idea that could be put forward. To imagine that you can impose a religion on a child without any form of intimidation is inconceivable. You cannot impose a religion on a child without bribery or intimidation. And I will not use bribery or intimidation as a parent. And you try and sell God and church and prayer and, and sin and guilt and death and, and Jesus died for you and try try selling any of that stuff without... It doesn't work intimidation very well from and what without I know. Sorry? It's, it's a, it doesn't work very well from what I know. I know some, you know, religious um, people in my, you know, extended family, and it was always, you know, they had to go to church, you know. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it was imposed upon them to go to church every Sunday and whatever. So, right. you know, no kid wants to go to church or temple. And, or now, and now that you have the growth of the surveillance state, you can't allow children to uh, be under their own recognizance. So in America recently, uh, there was a, a woman who got in significant trouble with the government because her children, who I can't remember the exact ages, like, I don't know, 8 and 10 or 8 and 11, were playing in a park like three doors down from her house. 
How old? And were, so, wait, how old were the kids? They were eight, eight and ten, eight and eleven. It's like old enough. I mean, God, when I was so when I was six, I went on an airplane. When I was six, I went on an airplane to Africa. When I was eight, I was walking like huh, three quarters of a mile on my own to to go to school. I mean, the idea that you can't play in a park three doors down from your house yeah, without a, adult supervision. A, but that's because we have a surveillance state now, and children must be constantly reinforced with having been being being watched and being surveilled at all times. The government is always there. Government's always watching. That, that, that's the way it has to be now. And um, uh, so everyone's watching it. And of course, everyone's paranoid. As crime goes down, people's paranoia goes up. I mean, violent crime has dropped like 40% in America over the last 10 years or so. And, and child abductions are way down and, and so on. And, and of course, now everyone's becoming more and more paranoid. Because the less there is of it, the more visible whatever it is, right? So as poverty began to decline, everyone's like, oh, my God, we need a welfare state for the poor. <laughs> well, no, it's being solved. Well, that's no good. We can't have it being solved that way. It's got to be something else. So the most subversive thing that, that we can do as a community, you know, I talk about it and it's fine to theorize about how property protection works in a free society. But property protection works in a free society in the same way that insurance against lion attacks works in Canada. <laughs> Don't need it. Like theoretically, theoretically, a lion could escape from the zoo and walk down my street and maul me, right? Could happen. A lion could fall out of a low-flying airplane, land in a snowbank, <laughs> emerge from the light. All of these things could happen, right? So through, through peaceful parenting, you want to eliminate <laughs> the... You know, we, we, well, we don't need these things protected because the chance of them being violated is so low now because we've done all these things to make it that way. That's kind of what you're going to Yeah, get. I mean, if, if, uh, if, if uh, uh, you know, I, no, no one's going to be trying to sell me lion insurance in Canada. I'm sure you can get it in the Serengeti. Right? You can't get it here in Canada, even though I could be attacked by a lion. And um, so we, we simply want to grow human beings. We want to change the trajectory of human genetics towards uh, peaceful, you know, we need to grow the neofrontal cortex. We need to shrink the fight or flight mechanism. Uh, and we need to increase people's verbal and linguistic skills so that they can negotiate. You know, people are like, oh, these video games, they're terrible. It's like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. The exercise of power and authority over children, which is non-negotiating, that's terrible. That's terrible. People, oh, well, you know, these kids, they're, they're watching video games. They're playing video games instead of reading books. I'm actually okay, majoring in uh, uh, computer video game design in college. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. There's, so, I've actually but the reality is that research if, if, you're concerned about, if you're concerned about children's verbal skills, then negotiate with them about all of the countless things that come up in a family situation. Negotiate with them. Teach them how to look for win-win situations and we're working on this i want to do this my daughter wants to do something else well i could just surrender to her which i did when she was little of course because she was just a toddler i could get her to surrender to me but what is that teaching her well someone wins someone loses right so reminding her look let's find something else that we both want to do more let's keep thinking about it until we sort it out right that's what we want to do and when you get negotiation-based life forms who are always looking for win-win situations and have the natural empathy of people thinking about their needs while also requesting that they think about other people's needs, you simply will grow human beings who cannot prey on each other and it never would even cross their minds as an option. Like they, they, 
They can't do it any more than my daughter's going to break into fluent Japanese tomorrow. Never been exposed to it. It's not going to happen. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people are going to really recoil from the message. And, you know, there, there was a show that you um, did. I think it was about um, uh, IQ and intelligence and cost benefit and whatever. And um, I think <laughs> you should really be just... titling our shows IQ cost benefit and whatever that would be a great name for a show (laughs) and whatever is usually quite key to what we do yes um but i think that that there are some people who the sophist appeals of uh, a state society you know are more appealing than the more complicated you know version of the way things should be that you're trying to put forward and absolutely and and this could be the case with your friends as well they can be as defensive as they want they can turn away from the truth they can turn away from evidence they can turn away from reason they can be as blind as bats if they want and this is the challenge that i put out and other people put out to people yes absolutely you can completely and totally reject the facts, the evidence, the moral arguments, you name it. You can do all of that if you want. And like the ancient Greek saying says, you take what you want and then you pay for it. So your friends can go and hit their children for 15 years if they want. I wish they wouldn't. It's a terrible thing if they do it. But they can go and do it. There's no law as far as I know where you are, you don't have to tell me where you are, there's no law that's going to stop them. They can go and they can hit their children, they can yell at them, they can insult them, they can bribe them, they can um, put them in naughty corners and timeouts and send them to bed without their dinner, they can do all of that stuff. And they can roll the dice. They can roll the dice and they can see what society is going to be like in 20 years. They can see what society is going to be like in 20 years. Listen, if you were a a, a husband in the 1940s and 1950s, you could be a real jerk to your wife. And for generations and generations, you could do that and you could get away with it because there were all these priests that told the women, got to go back to your husband, got to go back to your husband. I'm just giving you the cliche. It would work the other way too. But and and those who didn't, you know, wet finger the wind and see which way the change was going. Well, they hit the 60s, right? And they hit feminism. And feminism replaced the priests. And the priests were saying, honey, you made a vow to God. Your husband rules over you like Jesus rules over your husband. Well, and, and feminism you is got its own problem now. I mean, it's getting to... No, the- no, I, I get that. I'm just talking about the 60s, right? And the, the 60s came along and said, I only got one life to live, sister. Don't spend it making steak and potatoes for a male chauvinist pig you got no right. reason to stay with him if he's a jerk to you. In that fact, a lot of feminists in the 60s even said that all heterosexual sex was rape and all marriage was a slave. I think I believe Hillary Clinton was one of them, which is just speak for yourself, sister. But um, so, so they can do that in the same way that men can ignore the rumblings of feminism and continue to treat their wife like punching bags. And, and you know, it's like, okay, well, so 
you know, hitting your wife. I, and again, I'm going with the standard cliche. I know there's lots of arguments against all of this and all that, but just to go with the standard cliche. And if they choose to hit their children, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. I'm only getting bigger. I'm only going to amplify more. There's lots and lots of other people, many with much bigger reach than I am, who are opposing uh, spanking. It's beginning to show up even in the mainstream media, opposition to spanking, facts about spanking. So you can be a hitty, jerky, retrograde, medieval parent if you want. And there's going to be tons and tons of people. You're going to suddenly look around and you're going to realize that the world has shifted while you were hitting. The world has changed while you were hitting. And what seemed perfectly natural, if not moral and justified to you, will turn out to be brutal. And because the information was out there and freely available, your children will not find it easy to forgive you. I mean, not hitting your children has been around since the post-war period at a minimum, post-Second World War period with Dr. Spock. Yeah, I'm finding it very hard to forgive my parents. I mean, so I, I can see how that if people cho- keep on choosing to do this, that I just think that, you know, there is an argument that says, you know, violence furthers more violence, that if you hit kids, you know, part of the uh, effect is that it reinforces the cycle of violence. But there are some people like me who it just makes them more determined to make sure that it never happens to anyone else again. So, and right. I, I think those... But your people, challenge, your challenge is emotionally absolutely is is underway and you know again i hugely respect what it is that you're doing and the commitment you made to peace but your challenge is going to be i think when you get older right if you you know when you have kids your parents are going to want to be involved right yeah that's true they are and uh i mean i'm going to assume that you're going to say hey no hitting my kids oh yeah i would have to set the strictest of boundaries Right. Right. And what are you going to do when your daughter asks you what it was like for you as a kid? I don't know. That's a these tough are question. tough questions. Yeah. Because I'm telling you that there are all these dominoes, right? You, your daughter says to you, well, what, well, your son says to you, what was it like for you as a kid? Uh, you know, did your parents, how did your parents discipline you? Well, oh, they hit me a lot. They yelled at me, screamed at me a lot and so on. Right. I say, well, and she'll say, well, we'll, Will they ever do that to me? You say, well, no. I mean, I've got them to promise not to, right? Oh, so what they did was wrong. Yes, it was wrong. Well, do they know that? Do they admit that? No. Well, why aren't they doing it to me if they think it was right? Well, they're just obeying me. So you have people who think it's better to hit me, but they won't because they're afraid of you. Like These are difficult conversations (laughs) to get into. Yeah, I don't see how you would ever explain that to any kid. And I mean... That's but you, if they ask the questions, I'm not saying you sit them down and diagram it, but kids are relentlessly curious. They are. I mean, my favorite question was why when I was a kid, you know. Because I'm bigger. <laughs> well, that's the answer I got. No. no. I mean, I, I did get taught a lot by my parents. Um, they just had, you know, problems in their lives when they were growing up, you know. And so they did the best they could growing up and you know, made a name for themselves. Mm. And how do you know? How do you know they did the best they could? The, yeah, I mean, that's what that's what I have to tell myself is that they did they did the best they could with the tools that they had. 
Who did? It's my job to do better. So your parents did the best they could with the tools that they had? That I think. How do you know? Compared to what? By what standard would you know that? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, that sounds like a very certain... Well, I mean, based on the fact that, you know, they didn't have the most peaceful parenting homes, you know, when they were growing up, you know, their experience... Did you have the most peaceful parenting home? No, but it was certainly better than the homes that they grew up in. So you should, so let's say that it was 50% better, so you should, by that standard, hit your kids 50% less. No. Right. So you're trying to give your parents the excuse of environmentalism. The environment was bad. In other words, the environment determines personality. There's no choice, no free will, no option. No. Everyone who came out of a concentration camp was a child beater. Well, that's not true, though. I don't have the answer. I don't know what the answer is. I'm just, I'm concerned when people drape determinism over... No, I don't. I don't think it was, you know, deterministic. So they had a choice. They did, yes. So they could have done better. And they made mistakes. And they, well, they no, could have no, done better. No, no. A, a mistake is... Has no moral content, right? That's true. That's true. You're right. I'm just defending... Hitting children with objects, I don't know that you can... Put that under the cat. And again, I don't know what the answer is. I just would be careful about premature elaboration. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've pretty thoroughly uh, gone through, you know, rights and, you know, not hitting children. And the content of my question has... Uh, been sussed through pretty thoroughly. Listen, I really, really appreciate the conversation. I enjoyed it enormously. And, um, you know, you're certainly welcome back anytime. It's a, it's a real honor and pleasure to, to speak with you. Uh, thank you. It was good talking to you as well. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. All right. Up next is Greg. Greg wrote in and said, I would like to know what Stefan's opinion is of my theory that people's belief in a god or a supreme being is more of an instinct than it is a belief. I would like to discuss the evidence that may support this theory and discuss the possibility that this could help what he is trying to do by being less offensive to people that believe in God. Go on. Hello, Stefan. Hi. Hi, um, so um, I guess the first thing is uh, a lot of the discussion will depend on whether or not that's an original idea. I haven't heard anybody else talk about that, but i um, wondering if it's something that you've thought about before. But whether it's an instinct? Yeah. Yeah, I, it seems to me that I didn't need a lot of propaganda for a sex drive. I don't need a lot of propaganda when I'm hungry to eat food or when I'm thirsty to drink water. So I don't know if you can say that a belief structure that is anti-empirical and anti-rational needs a lot of inculcation if you're going to call it an instinct. Also, an instinct is something that we have in common with other animals. You know, like, say, 
voles or moles or bats, and I don't think that they have religion. But um, why would, um, in order for it to be an instinct, why would it have to be something that we have in common with animals? Well, because if you're going to use the word instinct, then that is something which is used by biologists to talk about sex and hunger and predator avoidance drives and, and so on that animals would also share. So if you're going to say it's particular to human beings, then you can't use the word instinct. And if you're going to say it's instinct to believe in a religion, then you have to say how we're using the same words that would apply to um, a, a beaver. Well, I think there's probably a lot of things that are different in human beings being so much more sophisticated and intelligent that uh, it might be possible that it's an instinct in human beings, but it's not instinct in animals. So a human instinct? Yeah. Okay. Um, I certainly believe that religion has a template in infancy and early childhood. And, I mean, this is scarcely an original idea to me. Of course, you can go back to Freud or, or even further back for this. But uh, the idea that there are giant, incomprehensible beings who watch over us and care for us and care what we do would seem to me to come directly out of infancy and early childhood. Okay. Um but, um, it just seems like a, an easy way to explain why, you know, throughout history, people have this belief in something that doesn't make sense, that there is no logic to it. But in all cultures throughout history, people have this very strong belief in a God, no matter how intelligent the person seems to be they all it's just so common that um yeah no you're just repeating yourself so what i'm pointing out is that the idea that let, let's say you have uh, a mom of course we have moms all of us have moms so you're you, when you're a baby there are these you know this, this this giant person who comes and goes um but is mostly focused on you and you're desperate for that person's approval, your mom's approval, because when she's happy, you're happy, and you gurgle, and she plays with you. And when she's unhappy or angry at you, she might leave you, she might hit you, she might not give you food, she might abandon you. So the idea that there are these giant beings out there whose reality we can't really comprehend, but whose approval we're completely dependent on, that they can send us to heaven, in other words, what Freud called the oceanic feeling of blissful unity with the mother against her breast, breastfeeding, cooing, hair stroking, all that kind of stuff. So the approval of this giant godlike being over our crib sends us, like, brings us to heaven. And the disapproval of this giant godlike person hovering around our crib sends us to hell, uh, to, to panic, to anxiety, to fear, to crying, and so on. And, and we're helpless. And then that our power relative to this giant godlike creature around us is 
non-existent. We have no power. Like we can't only get one ounce of milk if she gives us 10. We can't get any milk if she doesn't give us any. So we're helpless. We're completely dependent. This creature gave us life. And uh, we, are, we need this creature's approval uh, uh, madly. So the idea that there's a God that is responsible for your existence, that, um, uh, whose approval you must seek in order to get into heaven, and whose disapproval will send you to hell, and who's vast and shadowy, and who you, you think about all the time, and you supplicate in your mind, but you can't speak to directly. Of course, children prior to, you know, whatever, 12 to 18 months don't even have the power of language. So they're thinking about the they, they they think in their mind what they want, but they can't actually communicate directly with this um, uh, with this uh, godlike being and so on. Uh, th- these seem to me all very clear shadows or or templates for religious thinking, if that makes sense. So you're saying it's the way that mothers, primarily the, the way they raise us, the way they bring us up from very young age is what causes us to equate that to a religion or to a god? Well, given that most religions rely upon fear of disapproval and a desire for approval, it would seem to me that if parents are punitive towards children and, you know, significant percentages of America, of U.S., U.K., sorry, U.K. mothers hit their children even before their children are one year old, then the desperate desire for the approval of the shadowy God figure floating around our cribs would seem to me entirely in accordance. Then when a priest comes along and says, there's a shadowy God figure you can't communicate with directly, but can send you to hell or give you heaven if you obey and please him with no moral content and you can't speak to him directly, well, that would be infancy. But that's not natural. That's just, the, it's not inevitable. It's not universal. It's just the way that most parents have raised their children throughout most of history. Look, I don't want my daughter to be dependent upon my good opinion of her in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't mean I don't want to care about what I think or anything like that. But I don't want her to think about my pleasure or displeasure with her first. I don't, you know, and, and I never want it to be that it's negative because I disapprove or positive because I approve. Because then she's not thinking about what's good or bad or what's right or wrong. She's thinking about what I approve of or disapprove of. I don't want that for her. I never have, never will. So if there are parents out there who are like, well, if you please me, if I'm in a good mood, if I'm happy, then you get love and affection. And if I'm in a bad mood or you displease me or I'm unhappy, then you don't get love and affection then you're creating an other-oriented personality structure. In other words, a personality structure that mostly focuses on the needs and wants of other people as a means of getting its own needs met. In other words, I want to be held by my mother, so I need to please her. I need to make her laugh. I need to change her mood. I need to make her feel better. I need her to be in a good mood to get what my needs met, to get my needs met. And so you create an other-focused uh, social metaphysician is what Rand used to call it, um, which is somebody who doesn't think what's right or wrong, but what's approved of or disapproved of, the sort of Peter Keatings and, and James Taggart's and so on of her novels. Now, if you create an other-focused personality structure, 
through punishment and reward based upon mood and approval and disapproval as a parent, then you create someone who is always going to be in search of an external entity or agency to approve or disapprove, to contain the personality. You're going to seek, you're going to create a personality that is always seeking for an external authority to obey, to please and to supplicate in front of. And so parents who punish and reward based upon approval and disapproval are creating children who are going to fit near perfectly into both a statist or a government and a religious paradigm. And to break that, I don't know if that's an instinct or, I mean, I don't know what to, instinct to me is not particularly helpful. I think there are instincts, but they're not particularly philosophical in nature. I mean, someone's hungry, isn't it? But um, what I do think is, is interesting is the degree to which if we are, you know, really rational and empathetic and caring as parents, will we raise children who are going to be naturally religious? Well, I don't think that we are. And, you know, I won't get into sort of the evidence that I have for all of that, but I have not seen any evidence that if you raise a child to be self-contained, to have their own thoughts and feelings, to have the natural affection that comes from a high regard for someone else without being fearful of their approval or disapproval, if we have, if, if we raise children in that way, will they have a need for a deity? We all, when we're very young, we all have this belief that death is like sleep, right? When I was first explaining death to my daughter, she's like, okay, so we die, but then after a while we wake up again, right? Because death has been called the little sleep, uh, the big sleep, right? Or sleep is the little death, I think Shakespeare called it. And so we have this idea that death, we wake up. And so, you know, all of these things fit into a religious paradigm. And of course, we have this Garden of Eden, which could be argued, and I've made this case, I think in my fourth or fifth podcast, but you could, I think quite reasonably, though not conclusively, make the case that the Garden of Eden is either the womb or very early infancy. And what happens in the Garden of Eden is God gives a rule that is arbitrary. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, why? If you're supposed to worship God, then eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's like saying, otherwise it's like saying, really enjoy this music, but don't have ears. I mean, that would be kind of crazy, right? So, so surely if you're supposed to love the virtue of God, knowing the difference between good and evil would have you love God all the more. But God says, don't have knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, the snake tempts Eve, Eve tempts the man. I guess the snake had cleavage too. And then, you know, Adam and Eve are raged against, violently cast out because they disobeyed an arbitrary rule of the God, of the deity. In other words, there was no reasoning, right? The God didn't come down and say, well, you know, I created this thing as a paradise for you, but I accidentally put in something that's poisonous. Here, let me show you, you know, and he breaks off a piece of the apple, throws it into the ground and it sizzles and goes down, you know, like a spit up from Ripley's alien predator. He didn't do any of that. He just said, no eating of this golden fruit. Hung it right there in the middle of the garden. It looks beautiful. It looks delectable. It looks delicious. Plus, he created Lucifer. Lucifer was in the garden. In other words, somehow these children 
of of God was supposed to stand against Lucifer, who led an entire army of angels against God and had a pretty good shot. The second most powerful being in the entire universe was supposed to be no match for Adam and Eve, who were like nine days old. I mean, it's like putting a a baby up against the Sith Lord or the Emperor. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But it's a setup, right? And and the story of the Garden of Eden is, here's an arbitrary rule. I'm never going to explain. And the only reason you're supposed to obey it is I might get really, really angry. Now I'm going to let loose into this paradise, which I'm supposed to have been created for you, the second most powerful being in the entire universe a being who thought he could beat me in a war and who I can't even kill, can only banish to hell, the second most powerful being in the entire universe is going to go up against human beings who were created very recently and are basically babies in adult form. And when the second most powerful being in the entire universe outsmarts nine-day-old babies, ooh, big challenge, I am not going to get angry at Lucifer. I'm going to get angry at the babies. Adam and Eve are babies because they're newly created and they have no experience and have not matured or grown. How could they? They're in paradise. They're in no friction, no muscle resistance, no growth. And so the story of the Garden of Eden is... You know, as we talked earlier with, with the guy about, well, when kids run into the street, it's like, Jehovah, dude, the snake got into your garden. You set up this garden for Adam and Eve. And the snake got into the garden. That's your fault. You're all powerful. You're all knowing. In other words, you knew that Lucifer was heading towards Adam and Eve. You knew exactly what he was saying. You could argue because he's omniscient, he knew exactly what Adam and Eve were going to do, but all that. And so it was God's failure to protect Adam and Eve from the second most powerful being in the entire universe, who had a little bit more experience, knowledge, wisdom, and power than nine-day-old babies in adult form. It was God's inability to protect them from this evil, uh, powerful demon. Now, who gets punished for God's failure to protect his children, his babies, from this demon. Is it the demon? No. Is it God? No. The babies are punished. And this is very central to religion as a whole. And the babies are punished because they, under the influence of a hypnotically powerful arch demon, they ate the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which actually did them no harm. And, right? and then they basically left the entire environment because... Why would you need to leave the Garden of Eden and be cast away from God if you learn what good and evil is? Well, clearly because God is evil, right? There can be no other explanation as to why God would get angry. God wants to be worshipped. Why on earth would God get angry? Because Adam and Eve learned what good and evil is. Because if Adam and Eve knew what good and evil was, they would have recognized Lucifer and rejected him and worshipped God all the more. In other words, the one defense against Lucifer is knowing that he's evil, which God had denied them knowledge of by not letting them eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So 
as usual, it's the children who get paid for the hypocrisy, manipulations, and failures of the parents in this situation, wherein Lucifer is basically the mom and God is the father. Now, is that innate? Is, is it innate to our species to rage against our babies for our failures as parents? I find it hard to say that that's innate, that that's some sort of instinct. I mean, there are pe- it is our instinct to eat more sugar than we need. It's our instinct to eat more fat than we need. It's our instinct to conserve energy and not exercise. It's all of these are our instincts, yet still there are lean athletes, right? Still there are people who make better decisions with their food and their exercise. So we may have these instincts, but I would argue that the instincts that you're talking about are to do with how we are treated as babies and toddlers. And if, as babies and toddlers, we are treated to an immature and vitriolic display of approval and disapproval of praise and punishment based upon the capricious moods of our parents, then the idea that there's a vengeful deity who you need to seek approval from or he'll, th- he'll send you to hell would, would fit into that. I don't think it's instinctual. I think it's early imprinted, which to me is not the same. But anyway, that's the end of my speech. I'm happy to hear what you think. Okay, thanks. That's very interesting. Um, I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, it's changed my thinking dramatically in a relatively short period of time, even though you'd think I'm pretty set in my ways being 55 years old. And so I'm, and, but I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to um, have other, other people listen to the show, it's a little hard because most of the people I care about are religious. And I'm, so I'm thinking there must be an easier way to make it easier for other people. And, and so thinking that maybe if it's a, if it is instinctive to believe in a God, you know, trying to convince somebody that it's, that there's not a God would be like trying to convince somebody that they shouldn't eat or they, they shouldn't, a young man shouldn't want to have sex with, with women. It, uh, it'd be a very difficult thing to do. So if there's a possibility that it's instinctive, uh, maybe it would make what you're trying to do a lot easier or less offensive to people um, by saying, okay, yeah, you, you could have a belief in a God. That's fine. Just don't let religion exploit that belief in a God and bring along all the negative consequences of modern religion. So, I mean, <clears throat> and you raise, a, I mean, a very essential and powerful point, which is, you know, the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I don't mean to <laughs> trivialize what you're saying, but the question, and it's a big question. I don't, I don't have a perfect answer. The, the question is, to what degree should I dilute my message in order to spread it wider? Or to what degree should I hold back on my arguments in order to spread philosophy wider? Is that, and I'm not trying to trivialize or say that I don't have a perfect answer for it. Lord knows I'm constantly navigating that, that challenge. And believe it or not, there's a lot I hold back on. 
But um, is that what you what you mean? And again, you may have a, a great point, and I don't know where the line is, but is that sort of along the lines of what you're thinking? Like if I held back on certain things, it would be easier to woo people into the light, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and also, well, I think the argument you've made that it's not instinct, you've said that, well, animals don't have this instinct, so humans can't have it. I don't know. That that doesn't sit very well with me. Um, and then you've said... Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Hang on. I'm not sure what you mean. It doesn't sit very well with me. I and, and not you. I just I get these comments like floating around, you know, like, ah, oh, Steph, you lost me on this one, or I feel uncomfortable with this, or this doesn't sit right with me, or it seems to me that, and it's like, but that's not philosophy, right? I don't know what does it mean. It doesn't sit well with you. I don't well, know what that means. Is it correct or okay, incorrect? Um, there's a lot of differences between human beings and animals, just because animals don't have. Maybe they do have an instinctive belief in a god. We don't know. We can't communicate with them. But just and I didn't say they didn't. I said it doesn't seem to be that bats have a religion. I don't know. I mean, maybe they have some highly complex theology. I don't think. I don't think they do because they they have no spoken language, and it's hard to imagine a religion uh, without any spoken language, but um, uh, or written language for that matter. I, I, th- I think we can pretty much say bats don't have a religion. I'm comfortable with that. I go out on a limb there. Right. right I agree with that. But uh, okay. just because animals don't have religion, I don't think is a good argument to say that uh, um, the belief in a god is is not instinctive in human beings. No, no, no. That wasn't my argument. My argument is that if you're going to use the word instinct, then you have to tell me, since the word instinct applies to all animals, you have to tell me why you're using a word that applies to all animals but reserving it exclusively for human beings. I was just—it was a matter of confusion, right? Well, the reason why it would apply to human beings is because human beings are much more intelligent than animals. But then, th- have- but then you're talking about—sorry, but then you're talking about intelligence, not instinct, if that makes sense. Or you're talking about instinct combined only with human intelligence. It's right. just precision, right? I, you know, it's like if you say, "Well, all mammals believe in God." Obviously, I would have to say, "Well, I know." Humans are mammals and humans believe in gods, but how would all other mammals have that? And if you say religion is an instinct, well, most and most if not all animals have instincts, but not most if not all animals have religion. So it's just a clarification. It's not it's not like, oh, well, that proves my case. It's just I don't think we can use the word instinct as the basis of religion because all animals have instincts, but only one animal has a religion. Right. Well, we it's, need another word or we need to join the word instinct with another word so that it's not confusing. Because otherwise, it, it's just – it's logic 101. And I apologize to put it that boldly, but it is. If we say okay. uh, religion is an like, instinct, bats have instincts, then logically bats must have a religion, which they don't. So we can't – like it's just syllogism, right? Okay. So another word, maybe it's innate in human beings to believe in a god. No, innate is begging the question, because then we're saying, well, why is something there? Well, it's innate. That doesn't answer the question of why it's there. We're just assuming it's there permanently or in some metaphysical way. So if we say, you know, if I say, well, why does the sun rise? Well, it's innate for the sun to rise. Well, that doesn't answer anything, right? I'm just putting my non-answer in the word innate and thinking I've solved something, which I haven't. I'm not saying I know what the answer is, but... um 
Okay, well, um, so it's it's possible that, I mean, it would explain a lot, and and how. What would it explain? Let's say that it was instinctual in the way that you mean it. What would it explain? Its prevalence. Um. Well. Um. How could how well you've the question is is how could a belief in a god be so um, consistent through all all cultures all people throughout history and you, what you've said is that it's the way that kids are raised by their mothers that's what well no creates. no no I I said I put that forward as a hypothesis. Right. I, as I said, I can't prove it. it. You know, it's just it would it, it could work in a way. Right. OK. Um, so but look, slavery, slavery is was a constant feature of human societies, all human societies. Right. Until relatively recently. You know, it's easy to say instinct until it just changes. Right. And now slavery is around for most of the world is, is considered to be a terrible thing, whereas before it was considered to be the just spoils of war and a virtuous thing and the order in which um, superior cultures dominated inferior cultures or whatever they called them. And then it wasn't right. So was slavery an instinct? Um, was child sacrifice to the gods an instinct? Uh, again, it is until it's not. And then the word instinct becomes problematic, right? Well, because yeah, human beings will have sex drives until the end of time, right? Or at least until the end of human beings. Um, right. So that, I think, is an instinct. You can't sort of, you know, talk people out of a sexual instinct or, you know, feeling hungry when they're, when they're low on energy. I think those would be instincts. And sorry, go ahead. If people, if cer- certainly if people stop believing in God, then, yeah, then it wasn't an instinct. But... I don't think that people are going to stop believing in God. What do you mean? That's already happening. I mean, two-thirds the... of, two-thirds of, uh, in Canada, uh, two-thirds of those, I think, over 55 are religious. A half of people in middle age are religious, and about one-third of the young are religious. I mean, the the, the, the decline of religiosity in the West is is significant. I'm not saying it's all good because what it's being replaced by is in many ways much more toxic than religion ever could be. Because you don't have to go to church, but the government can impose its rules on you, right? I mean, so, uh, but people are certainly, religiosity uh, in in the Christian world is declining uh, in certain areas quite considerably. And there are many countries, I mean, Japan is, is almost exclusively atheist. I mean, the couple of Shinto shrines and some crazy people who let loose uh, poison in, in subways. But that is a largely atheist country. Uh, a lot of the Scandinavian countries are explicitly atheist uh, and, and have very few religious believers. It may be that you're talking about your world rather than the world, if that makes sense. Well, maybe. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of those statistics where atheism was so it was you know, more popular. Let me just, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but just for those who, atheism by country. Let me just give you some some actual facts rather than stuff pulled out of my armpit. Irreligion by country. Irreligion, which includes deism, agnosticism, and so on. Um, 
Let's see here. Yeah, Belgium is a sixty-eight percent irreligious. Uh, Bulgaria fifty-eight percent. Canada sixty-one percent. China eighty-two percent. Czech Republic seventy-two percent. Denmark is eighty-three percent irreligious. In other words, you know, not no organized religion of any kind. Finland sixty-nine percent. Germany sixty-two percent. Hungary and Iceland sixty-three and sixty uh, percent. Japan is seventy-one percent. Uh, Luxembourg coming in at 64%. Uh, the Netherlands is 65 New Zealand 67% irreligious. Uh, atheism is, is the fastest growing belief system uh, uh, in the world. And uh, the UK is 76% irreligious. And uh, tragically, Zimbabwe is only 9%. But we're still, uh, <laughs> still working on that. So you may be... Uh, let me just see where the US is. Uh, 36% irreligious. Hmm. So, I, always thought um, the, I always thought that about 90% of people believe in God. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it really depends on how you ask the question uh, and and who you're asking, the demographics and so on, I think are important. Uh, and, um, you know, like, I mean, uh, I don't know, uh, like over 90 Four or ninety-five percent of members of the Royal Science Society, Scientific Society in in England, are explicit atheists. Uh, so if you go and ask those guys, or you go and ask, uh, I don't know, people studying um, the arts at Ivy League colleges, you're probably not going to get much religion. You know, you go to uh, the south, uh, into rural areas, and so on. There seems to be obviously. So it depends who you ask, where you ask, the age you ask, the demographic, the race, the culture, even the gender can be divergent. So you have to be careful about extrapolating from, you know, personal experience. I get that it would be easier for your friends if I was, I don't know what to put it, less explicit about the arguments against deities. But unfortunately, your friends wouldn't really be my demographic, if that makes sense. Well, if the if these trends continue, then there's a lot of hope for what you're trying to do with your show. I hope movie. so. I mean, I, again, I you know, I, uh, I I love me some godhood compared to communism. I would I would much rather live among fundamentalist Christians than I would among communists or fascists or you know extreme lefties. I find like. The, the the sort of extreme lefties, like the really, ugh, I, I like they make my skin crawl. I, I'm not. This is no rational argument at all. Like they, they really like. Oh, I just, I, I yeah, they creep me out. And you know, fun, fundamentalist Christians. I've known quite a few. I've known a lot of them in business. Lord knows, I've known a lot of lefties too. I mean, I was in college and graduate school in the arts in Canada. God help me, it's like lefty central. In fact, one of the schools I went to, the, the, the head of the school dragged us all in and said, well, you all seem very young, white, and bourgeois, don't you? It's like, oh, God, here we go, right? <laughs> Let's do more Mother Courage and her children. Um, Bertolt Brecht, one of the most repulsive human beings who ever lived, but that's another example of leftist power-seeking hypocrisy that we can talk about another time. But um, certainly in the business world, did a lot of business in the South. I've known a lot of uh, Christians, very fundamentalist Christians, 
and, uh, you know, have a lot in common because, you know, we talk about ideas, we talk about ethics. Uh, they have a greater appreciation for the wider spread of non-PC arts that forms the foundation of most of Western, the Western cultural experience. And um, so I, I mean, I would certainly have a lot more in common with your friends in, in the pursuit of virtue and truth and the acceptance of universal ethics um, the, 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 the shifting foggy, crazy sands of pragmatism and utilitarianism and all this kind of crap that goes on among lefties, I find pretty hideous. Uh, it literally is like entering into somebody's dream physics nightmare, at least with the Christians, you know, they, Hey, ex- objective morality, you know, the, the, they focus on the family. The great thing about Christianity and religiosity is that it, it, has absorbed and communicated very hard-won and received wisdom about what is best for society in many ways. Christians don't imagine that humanity can be reinvented to be free of sin or free of temptation or free of, of malevolence. They accept that, you know, we are beings poised between good and evil. And whichever way we set our foot, it's whichever way the plank tips and our hearts follow. It's a kind of Manichaean view of the duality of good and evil and that the choices we make about good and evil in our life are foundational to our existence and we are responsible for them. They do not ascribe, Christians gloriously do not ascribe our ethical choices to environment alone. A lot of the lefties are like, oh, yeah, I grew up poor, so this is how he is, right? right? And so the, the lefties focus so much on environment because that's what they promise to change to make you better, right? The Christians promise to give you Jesus, and that gets you to heaven. So they promise that this is the stuff that's going to make you better. The lefties say, well, we'll give you government money and free education, and, and that will make him, you know, welfare payments and, and SNAP, and, and that will make you better. Now you'll be, and the, the Christians say, well, uh, accept Jesus and do these things and you're saved. And I, because I find it so creepy to think that we are just empty water poured accidentally into the containers called the environment. And that's the only shape we have. I find pretty hideous. The degree to which lefties exclude themselves from merely environmental forces, because in order to change the environment to make humanity better, they must automatically put themselves in a overlord position over humanity, right? I'm going to rearrange the maze so the rats get through there quicker. Well, you can't be a rat who doesn't even know it's a maze if you're going to rearrange the maze. They've got to automatically lord it over humanity as a whole in order to change the social cues and environments and economic relationships that apparently just produce who we are no matter what. But it hasn't somehow produced who they are because they can see it all and change it and so on. So I do not like this uh, overlordism, this ubermensch stuff that comes with the lefties. And there is a humility among the Christians. There is a, a respect for philosophy uh, among the Christians. There is a, um, a focus on free will among the Christians. There is a focus on universal ethics and virtue and the importance of, uh, of pursuing virtue. And there is a civic-mindedness among Christians that I have yet to find strongly expressed in the atheist community. You know, Christians, if you're sick, they'll bake your food and come on over. I don't know that that happens a lot with the atheist community. I could be wrong. But um, uh, so as far as, you know, recognizing that there's no God and that the arguments for gods are, are easy to puncture and so on, 
doesn't mean that I dislike religious people or or that I I think that they're all monstrous and so on. I do disagree very strongly and always have with the degree of uh, uh, aggression that is applied towards children in the imprinting of religion. You know, I think <clears throat> many, many years ago, just dating a woman. Actually, it wasn't even a date, really. It wasn't. We never kissed or anything. We never even held hands. But we were just kind of hanging out a lot. And we were both interested in each other. Anyway, it turned out she was religious. And this is back in my salad days. And because I'm not an idiot, at least not often, <laughs> not too often anyway, we talked about what it was going to be like if we got married because I'm an atheist and she's religious. And she said, uh, I remember very clearly, she said, oh, yes, it's fine. My dad's not religious. You know, my mom takes us to church. My dad sleeps in. Like, oh, I like to sleep in. <laughs> wait, wait, that's not right. And um, uh, we were able to negotiate that. But um, then uh, one evening uh, I said, um, ah, but the kids, you know, I said, this is the challenge, right? This is the challenge is that if the kids want to become religious when they're older and can understand religious arguments, philosophical arguments, the history and context of religion and so on, if they want to become religious when they're older, okay, that's their choice. But religion can't be told to them when they're young as if it's true and without doubt. And yeah, whole body went tense. And she's like, nope, can't do that. Can't make that deal. Can't make that deal. Right? Religion, I, I have to tell them. Right? I mean, the religion has to be when they're young. And that was, you know, we, we never went any further in the relationship. I mean, we hung around still a little bit more, but it basically petered out after that. <laughs> Peter and Paul out after that. But um, that, that struck me. And I, I think I would have a better relationship with religious people if they didn't. And this is not true of all religious people, of course, right? But if they didn't go overboard with hellfire and brimstone with kids. And, you know, for those who want, you should read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce for how religion was and hell was described to kids in the past. I had some of that, though not quite as bad as in that book. Uh, the description of hell is is psychotic and absolutely, absolutely terrifying and was pounded into kids' heads like nails over and over again. And um, so there's a lot that I admire and respect and appreciate about religiosity. Um, religiosity had a lot to do with the end of slavery. Religiosity combined with enlighten the Enlightenment and religious people do great good in the world and they have great community minded spirits and religion understands the value of community in a way that uh, atheists uh, often don't in my, again, this is all just conjecture and thoughts, not nothing proven or anything. So my philosophical arguments bother people. I get that. I obviously, I don't think anybody would fundamentally respect me if I did not make philosophical arguments because they would bother people, then I don't think, I certainly wouldn't win over your friends and I wouldn't have the friends that I have. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if you stand for something, you'll be loved and hated. If you stand for nothing, you will neither be loved nor hated because nobody's ever bothered by things you don't really do. And I think that uh, it, it is important for me to 
to speak the truth as far as I can explicate it as consistently as I can with as much humility and correction as I'm capable of, which I think is a fair amount. But I don't think if I start going down the rabbit hole of it's a valid argument that people can't rebut, but it bothers people, therefore I shouldn't make it. I think if that's my approach, I need a different line of work. Like I, I just, I just need a different line of work. Everyone's success is someone else's failure. You know, I mean, if I buy, if I go and see one movie, I'm not going to go and see someone else's movie. I mean, maybe I will, but not at the same time. Everything I do is an exclusion of everything else, right? I mean, me doing this show tonight on New Year's Day, 2015 is me not doing anything else, not spending any money or going anywhere or doing anything else or watching anything or, or writing songs in a ukulele. And so I think that the job fundamentally is speak the most important truth that does the best in the most consistent and rational and empirical way possible and bring experts in where your expertise is, is clearly deficient when you wish to make empirical arguments that you do not have the training or credentials to make. I think that's kind of the gig. That's too long to fit on a business card, <laughs> unless it's hyper landscape. I, th I think that's the gig. That's the deal. As a philosopher, you, you make arguments from first principles and you do not shy away for fear of upsetting people. Because, I mean, there used to be this paternalistic approach to medicine. I think up until this, maybe the 60s or 70s, like a doctor wouldn't tell someone who was terminal that they were terminal. They would just withhold that, saying, well, what's the point? It's just going to upset them. I think that's kind of changed now where people say, look, you, you, you just give people the information and they have to make their own decisions. They have to come to their own peace with it. Because people have this, and it's not just me, it's, it's you know people who put out important thoughts in the public arena. Like, I you know, put out an argument years ago about how status support the use of violence against you. Once you make that case clearer and clearer and clearer, at some point, that's going to have to have an impact. You either drop the philosophy or it's going to have to have an impact on your relationships. And people bothered by that. But I don't see how it's written in the job description of a philosopher that I shouldn't make arguments because it upsets people. I don't think that's everything you do in this world is going to upset someone, I mean, you put one thumb up to hitchhike, there's going to be 10,000 people somewhere in the world who said it should have been your other thumb or whatever, right? So I don't think that I serve philosophy by withholding truth or withholding arguments that are important for the sake of manipulating people into liking me more or into not being bothered by what I said or what I say. Because I'm trying to not just do philosophy, but show philosophy, which is to show how you can positively speak the truth uh, and stand in the face of, of disapproval and hatred with, you know, courage and poise and equanimity and so on. I want to show it and, and live it as well as just talk about it. And I'm not saying you don't or anything like that, but I, I do think that the idea that I'm going to withhold important arguments that can really change people's lives because it might bother some people if that was my concern that would be to me like being a surgeon but not wanting to cut anyone i'd like if the, you know if you faint at the sight of blood you need a different job does that make sense sure yeah that is all. i'm not saying do you agree i'm just you know does it make sense 
Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and very helpful, very interesting. I definitely have to go back and listen to this one over again. I think there's probably a few things I didn't completely understand, but you probably uh, put it out very well. Um, but um, very helpful, um, very interesting. I've got a lot of Christian fans. Like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do. A lot of, a lot of people write to me and say, like, I'm a Christian, but I love what you're doing. And uh, what can I say other than I appreciate that, right? I mean, because, look, I mean, I, I like Christians too uh, and, and other religious people as well. Because a statist can send me to prison, but a Christian can't send me to hell, if that makes sense to you, right? Sure. And, and so the fact that, that Christians and other religious people really like what I'm doing, I think is great. I mean, what I'm doing has a lot in common with, with Christianity. I mean, Christianity is founded on a revolution against the ancient order. And the substitution of abstract punishments for real punishments, right? I want ostracism, not jail. Jesus wanted hell, not brimstone into the towns from the pillar of fire from God, right? Jesus wanted abstract punishments rather than real punishments. And I like the idea, you know, for hell for, for many Christians is merely the absence of God. It's not the, you know, the presence of punishment. It's not devils with pitchforks. It's the absence of God. And that is supposed to be like God is glorious enough that the absence of God is punishment enough that you wish to. And I think that that directly translates to I don't want jails. I want ostracism. Ostracism is an incredibly powerful social mechanism for getting people to do the right thing. Uh, but of course, it's been elbowed aside by by the state, by 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 the police and by the courts and by jails and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it'd be fascinating to me, like right now, as we speak, I think since the 22nd or 23rd of December, the police in New York have basically stopped most of their policing. Drug arrests are down like massive amounts of traffic uh, violation arrests, minor arrests down like over 90%. And um, arrest rates are down 60 to 70% of the whole. They've been told, do not arrest people until abs- like unless absolutely necessary, which, of course, begs the question, what the hell were they doing before? And this is blowing holes in the, it's going to be an interesting test to see whether spontaneous social self-organization springs up in the absence of external coercion and structure. And also whether crime increases or decreases, I'm going to assume because of the paucity of drug arrests and the price of drugs is going down, which is going to put the marginal producers out of business, I hope. And it will be fascinating to see what this does. It blows holes in the um, the broken window policing, which is basically, well, you know, if there's a window that's broken, if you deal with all the little crimes, somehow the big crimes are going to get better, which seems to me just people wanting to go home at night rather than take on well-armed drug dealers. But that's uh, perhaps a different uh, topic for a different time. But um, no, I, I, I think that... Um, if people remember the the radical element of what Jesus was doing, and that Jesus Jesus didn't come down like like 
God kept coming down and blowing people up and drowning people and, and making people sick and, and sending signs and so on. But what I thought was most powerful about Jesus was that he was a radical of language, right? I mean, he did his miracles and so on, and you could say that that's just selling the God to the cheap seats and so on. But the most famous things that people remember about Jesus is, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and his his arguments, let he is without sin, cast the first stone. What an argument to humility that is to stop the mob in its tracks. However implausible the story is that the only person who remained as a witness was the woman who probably wouldn't be believed anyway, but that doesn't matter. Uh, his love your neighbor as yourself, uh, his his radical pacifism to to let, turn the other cheek, and, and if a, a man asks you for your cloak, give him your shirt as well, and if he asks you to walk a while with him, walk two miles with him. This radical, I mean, they're not, it's not philosophy, they're like homilies, but, but he was a, a revolutionary in, in language. He did not lead an army. He did not perform miracles great and grand enough for the entire world to convert to him. Uh, he did not uh, uh, bring hellfire and brimstone down from on high. I mean, he couldn't even get saved from the cross, though he begged to be saved from the cross. He was a, a radical of language. He overturned visceral punishment with abstract punishment, and he attempted to reshape a highly invasive and highly centrally planned moral system of punishment and reward from the Old Testament deity, he, I, I would argue he sought to replace that with exhortations and language and arguments. And uh, that, to me, is a very powerful thing. That's so why I think that there are things in common that, that... This all sounds ridiculous, right? Oh, I'm like Jesus. I mean, it's not anything like that. But in terms of making the case through language rather than through punishment, I think that's what Christians uh, find uh, valuable about what it is that I do. And of course, when I got cancer in 02, a lot of people were praying for me. And I guess yeah, I never <laughs> tried to reject anyone's good thoughts if they're there to be had. But, so you, um, think that, you think that religion may, have, may be a part of the evolution of society? It's just Well, it certainly has been. It certainly has been. Um, you know, the problem with saying that then it's an instinct or somehow embedded within our neofrontal cortex is to say we shouldn't evolve beyond it. It's like saying, well, we should evolve beyond our sex drive. It's like, nope, <laughs> nope, because without the sex drive, there's no evolution. So, um, uh, but uh, I also think that, I also think that, that Christians come to this show as well because, or religious people come to this show as well because I'm, I'm digging deep into some very essential ideas about, about good and evil and right and wrong and how society should be structured. Whereas a lot of the moral nihilism that comes out of the left, I think, is pretty repulsive to, to a lot of Christians, just as it is to me. And, of course, I was raised as a Christian. And it's, it's impossible and ridiculous for me to say that, and it would be false for me to say that my passion for ethics was uninfluenced by my Christian upbringing. No. I only missed the universality of ethics because I expected it and it didn't pan out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when I was, so I was a little kid, let me tell you, this is like, my, my, a friend of my mom's was going to go to, to play bingo. And she said to me that if she, I can't remember how old I was, maybe five or six. Five, I think, because it was before boarding school. She was going to bingo and she said the, the, the prize was, was 500 pounds huge amount of money, especially back then. And she said, if I win the 500 pounds, I'm going to give you $18. Five, 18 pounds. Now, in my mind, because I was five, 
I'm like, well, I'm getting 18 pounds. <laughs> you know, all the candy, all the toys, you know, everything. I'm getting 18 pounds. I'm getting 18 pounds. Or mentally, you know, thumbing through the money in, in my mind and kissing it and rubbing it all over me. <laughs> 18 pounds was mine, I tell you, right? Which was a crazy amount of money because I grew up doing porn all. And part of me was like, plus we'll have heat this winter. <laughs> you can feed the coins into the meter and get some heat. Anyway, so after licking my Midas-based chops all evening and and so on, the, the woman came back and she'd only won five pounds or she, she gave me 18 pennies. Oh my goodness, I was like ridiculously inconsolable because I like, I cried, I cried. I couldn't, couldn't, you know, because I just, I don't know if it had not been explained to me well or whatever it was, maybe I just didn't understand it. But I thought I was getting 18 pounds when that woman came back. And I wanted to do a lot with that money. I came back at 18 pennies and I was like, so for me, like religion promised me the 18 pounds. And when I didn't even get the 18 pennies, when it came to universal ethics, I'm like, ah, this is terrible. I want the universal ethics. Daddy wants the universal ethics. Give me the ethics. Give me the morality. I need it. Because I thought I had it. Jesus and all. Ten commandments. I thought I had the whole thing. And then... It's not there. It's a ghost. <laughs> There's an exorcism called reason. There's no ghost. You don't drive the demon out. You drive the concept of demon out as, as something that can exist. And so because I've been promised the riches of universal ethics and I didn't get the riches of universal ethics, it's like, hey, I thought I was getting 18 pounds. I got nothing but a poke in the eye. <laughs> so now I got to go out and make 18 pounds or more. Right? So... For me, growing up religious, for me, when I became an atheist, it was very important for me. I've always been really struck by that phrase, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And that to me is really, really important. It, it means, of course, as you know, right? I mean, you throw the bathwater out because it's dirty, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You keep the good stuff even if you're getting rid of the bad stuff. Now, a lot of people throw the baby out with the bathwater and they grow up religious and then they say ethics and objectivity and truth and universality are as much of a lie as a deity. <laughs> out it goes. And this is where the endless manipulations of the centrally planned moral nihilists we call the lefties come in. And uh, yuck. I recognized that I could not get universal ethics from a fictional being. Right. It's like saying I'm going to write in a character in a novel who's going to pay my bills. Well, I guess you could if the, if the books sell a lot. But but um, my relentlessness was wanting, needing the universal ethics while accepting that their source could not be religiosity. And that was like a 20 year struggle for me before I cough, coughed up the hairball of UPB. So if people are religious because they want to be good, then they'll find great compatibility in what I do here. If people are religious because they enjoy torturing children with stories of hell, I'm not saying that's any of your friends or anything, then they're not going to find much of compatibility here. If people are yearning for the truth, searching for the truth, and they have found what they need in religion ethics, community, and so on, well, they'll find ethics, I think, here, and better rational ethics 
community? No, no, not really. I mean, because we've still got a long way to grow, which we're going to do. But so, you know, I, you know, I hope that in my railing against religiosity, I am merely attempting to clear the brambles out of people's journey towards truth and virtue. I certainly don't want to strip people of their desire for and joy in reason, truth, and virtue. People believe that it's empirically provided through a deity, but it's not. And I'm shooting up a flare saying, if you want the goodies of reason and virtue without obedience to ghosts and guys in funny hats, we're here. You can do it. It's right here. Right here. You can get the good without the crazy. Because when you got to take the crazy with the good, it's a pretty unstable relationship. You're dancing with nitroglycerin. But if you can get the good without the crazy, without the irrationality, without the superstition, I mean, wouldn't you want that? I mean, isn't the purpose of religion to make you good, not to have you subservient to ghosts, but to make you good? And if there's a way of being good and knowing good and understanding good and being able to rationally defend goodness with all the power of rationality, philosophy, science, and empiricism, if there's a way to do that without this bullshit of pragmatism and utilitarianism and and categorical imperatives and stuff, if there's a way to be good and rational and consistent and know that you're right, isn't that worth giving up the ghost for? Because the ghost is going to give you universality, but superstition and subservience. If you can get the universality with neither the the superstition nor the subservience, isn't that much better? Because the question is, why would you let go of that? Well, most people don't want to let go of that because they want to be good and they want to be right and they want to know they're doing a good and right thing. And and the, the atheists and the secularists and the leftists and the secular humanists, they can't give you that because they're not philosophers. They're scientists or socialists uh, and so on, right? So science is great but value neutral and Socialism is um, a virus in the brain of humanity and the spine of humanity. So that's sort of my goal and invitation is, yes, I can be harsh and scathing against the deities. Yeah, absolutely. If there's a lot of rust, you need to put some elbow grease in to get the shine underneath the rust. But the reason to let go of that is that you cannot be consistently good through superstition and subservience. You can't be any more than you can be a great archer blindfolded. Occasionally you'll hit a target, but she's not going to be consistent. But through philosophy, you can get reason, evidence, virtue, goodness, community without superstition and subservience, without having to hold your nose and believe stuff because you want to break through the brittle stink of religiosity and get to the glowing heart of virtue that we all want, we all need, most of us anyway. Well, philosophy can provide that to you with certainty, with structure, with rationality, and you don't have to split yourself into someone who's willing to put up with the taste in order to get the nutrition. You don't have to have bad taste to get good nutrition. Philosophy tastes great and gives you good nutrition. And that is is certainly my appeal to two religious people who, again, I argue I have much more in common with in many ways than most of the people who were secularists, atheists, and, and so on. Because those people have given up 
on both God and goodness, which to me is very toxic, very toxic, and opens up, as Nietzsche pointed out in the 19th century, you give up God, you open a black hole where superstition and subservience to deities is then replaced with nationalism and subservience to a secular state. It's infinitely more dangerous in many ways. You, you, you push out the priest, in comes the demagogue. You push out the rabbi, in comes the central planner with all the awesome might and power of the state, which you cannot say no to. You know, you can suffer ostracism from a religious community. You cannot suffer ostracism from a status community because they won't let you alone. Because they got laws and you got to obey them and you go to jail and so on, right? So I apologize because I don't think, you know, just thinking about this, I don't know that I've made that very, very clear. That has been uh, my, my goal. You know, when I talk, we talked earlier about, even in this show, about the Garden of Eden and so on, I'm like, yes, it's crazy. It makes no sense, right? So let's not hang our ethics on that wobbly foundation of ancient superstition. Let's find a, you know, as Jesus said, build your house on rock, not on sand. And if we want ethics, we need to build them on philosophy. <clears throat> we can't climb up the ghostly spines of ancient deities and think that we can shoot a light to illuminate the world. Again, does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing what you do. Very interesting. Again, you're changing my thinking pretty dramatically and really appreciate what you do. Um, um, actually, the one last thing, um, just summarize what you're saying about how... Um, um, people have developed this belief in God so consistently through through history. How is that? How did that? How did that happen? Well, the beliefs in God may be consistent to you because you're around people who believe in the same religiosity, but beliefs in God are are very varied throughout throughout the world. I mean, there are like 10,000 different deities that people believe in, and there are religions that are more aggressive. There are religions that are more peaceful. There are religions where there's no afterlife. There's religions where there's no heaven and there's no hell. There's religions where, um, you know, in Zoroastrianism, <clears throat> it is your decisions that determine whether the evil gods or the good gods win in the end, right? I mean, that it's that closely balanced. There are religions where the evil deities triumph. I'm thinking sort of Ragnarok and so on. There is um, a, a huge variety in religiosity around the world. And of course, if you throw statism in as a form of religiosity, which I would, then that makes things even more uh, challenging and complicated. Um, but I think, again, to me, so much of our most abstract belief systems I find so firmly rooted in our earliest childhood experiences. My first sentence when I was a baby was leave me with what I'm doing. I didn't like interference. <laughs> I didn't like people uh, uh, bothering me. And and that didn't mean, I mean, I like to play with other kids and all that, but but I just didn't like it. Uh, you know, people, kids are kind of grabby. You know, oh, let me fix that for you. I'm going to, you're not drawing that right. Here's the, let me fix this letter for you. I was like, no, leave me with what I'm doing. I want to figure this out by myself. I want to focus on this myself. If you can't participate, then don't take over. In other words, don't make 
this moment a win-lose for me. Like, you write it right and I've been wrong. Let me figure it out. Leave me with what I'm doing. That was my, my, first, uh, my first sentence reported when I was a kid. Mm. And, you know, now I have a, a desire for <clears throat> the state not to interfere with what I'm doing. I have a, a desire for deities to not uh, judge and interfere and send me to heaven and hell uh, and so on. Right? I have a desire for freedom from interference. That doesn't mean freedom from people, because when people are interfering with you, they're not close to you, right? I mean, then a jailer is intimate to the cellmate because he's controlling where he's at, right? And so I, I think that a lot of our, our most abstract ideas come from a lot of our very early experiences. So if there's a commonality for you, in religiosity, the first place I would look, it's not the only place, not the last place, the first place that I would look is I'd say, okay, well, is there something in early childhood, infancy and early childhood, maybe even in the, pre, uh, in, the, uh, in the womb, is there something that might be occurring for people that would be common enough that it might give rise to a phenomenon such as religion? Um, that, again, that's not the only place that I would look. It may not even be the last place, uh, but it's the first place that I would look. And uh, I will sort of leave you with those thoughts to say the fact that it's Mother Mary, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you know, that the fact that the, fa- that the priest is called Father in, in many religions, again, the Mother Mary, the fact that the, they're not hiding it <laughs> very well. If it's to do with mom and dad when you're little, they're not doing a very good job of hiding it. Right. And and in many ways, the more primitive the religions, the more, quote, masculine the men look. They get these crazy long beards and stuff like they hyper masculine looking um, uh, with. The, so so, uh, you know, you, you never see a clean shaven Jesus outside of a Willem Dafoe movie. Right. And um, so. I would look at early childhood experiences because that we all have in common and early childhood experiences are very common uh, throughout many cultures in terms of parental approval and disapproval. And um, I would argue as well, and this you can get more of this from psychohistory.com, but I would argue as well that the more harsh the religion, the more harsh the early childhood experience, which would be another pillar of support for the thesis. So that would be my suggestion on where to look. Again, I can't give you an answer off the top of my head that's any more comprehensive or useful than the one I gave you already, but that's where I would start to look if I were you. Very good. Very right. interesting. Really enjoyed it. Anytime, man. Great, great topics. I really, really appreciate what everyone's bringing up tonight, as, as usual. Uh, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff to, to, to think about. And I, again, I love you guys so much. Like, I can't even express it without, like, leaking earthling feeling fluid from my eye sockets. So um, I, I just I feel so grateful that, that people are willing to call in and talk about these very important topics, these vulnerable topics, these powerful topics. Uh, this is where the marrow of the matter really lives. Uh, this is where philosophy really lives. I also love and hugely respect this audience for putting philosophy into practice, into actually making choices in your life based upon philosophy as I try to and, and succeed and fail <laughs> in regular intervals. And, uh, you know, I love this conversation Uh, as much as I can express my love of anything. I love this conversation. I am deeply, deeply honored. Well, thank you very much for what you do. 
Thank you. To be to be a part of this conversation and to enable and facilitate this conversation around the world. Thank you, everybody, so much. If you want to help out the show, as usual, freedomainradio.com slash donate. We need you. We can't do it without you. And uh, I would argue that the future needs all of us to contribute as much as we can comfortably to bring about better thinking and clearer thinking across the world and into the future. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have yourself a wonderful 2015. We will be seeing you, oh, very regularly.